Since the 23rd of March, the FTSE All Share and S&P 500 have both risen by more than a quarter. And yet, in the meantime, leading economists have issued stark warnings about the post-coronavirus outlook. The U.S. economy has been afflicted with some significant macro imbalances for a long time. But these problems are going to go from bad to worse as we blow out the fiscal deficit in the years ahead. Whether we should fear the disparity between market movements and the economic outlook or enjoy it is a hotly debated topic and one on which two of our regular podcast guests have starkly contrasting views. Phil Oakley has some major concerns about the logic of recent market movements. I am a believer in in free markets and that markets should be allowed to move around and find find a price. While Cristillo argues that investors shouldn't always fear liquidity-driven market rallies. Policy makers' actions are as much part of the environment as, as investor expectations and earnings and everything else. Liquidity has become an especially sensitive topic among UK investors since the Woodford fiasco of 2019. But low liquidity doesn't always have to be a bad thing. In fact, we'll also be talking to Alex Hamer, who this week has written an article about a paper which discusses the uses of illiquidity as an investment strategy. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm Dave Baxter. Welcome to the Investment Hour. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. Dave, thanks very much for joining me to co-host in John's absence. So liquidity, obviously something you in the PF side of the magazine have talked about quite a lot. I mean, last year with Woodford, it was definitely a hot topic. Yeah. At the moment, we're obviously talking about the market rally. Is it liquidity driven or is it one being caused by general optimism? Yeah, it's, uh, thanks for having me for a start, but it's kind of the wonderful and confusing thing about markets and that you never, you never can really, or very rarely can pinpoint kind of, you know, one factor behind large moves up or down um liquidity is certainly going to be a large part of it um as we kind of mentioned at the start of the podcast um it's really interesting you have this huge disparity between the economic outlook looking really grim it's not going to look especially positive for really quite some time in a lot of respects this year is almost a a write-off um, and then, you know, the huge rebounds in markets since since late March. I mean, even, say, FTSE 100, if you look last week, since late March. I mean, that's one been, been one of the kind of worst performing um, regions, the UK. Um, but that was up by around 25%. Mm. Um, liquidity will have a huge impact because um, you, of course, have the uh, kind of monetary easing. You have the fiscal and monetary stimulus but perhaps it's also created a bit of a uh, kind of feedback loop because some investors are also just kind of heartened by the size of markets recovering. Um, some investors will have been simply trying to buy in on those really low valuations we saw around March. Also, interestingly, some people may be um, quite uneasy about what, what markets are doing and about the underlying fundamentals, but you're getting this kind of fear of missing out factor in the markets. Yeah, One interesting piece of research, um, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, they uh, do a monthly kind of survey of how global fund managers are feeling, how they're positioning themselves um, and how they're investing. And the most recent one um, actually describes investors as being uh, neurotic because they are, on average, they are putting more of their cash to work in the market. Um, but the vast majority of them, when asked, thought that the equity market looked overvalued. So they may feel uneasy about where markets are going, but people want to participate in these huge gains. Mm. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because if you if you are sitting on cash, if you want to be doing something with your money, there aren't very many other options at the moment. You're not you're not getting high returns from anything other than equities. And yeah, while the markets are certainly they do look a little bit wobbly you almost think, well, what else am I going to be doing with my money if I'm not going to be investing in shares? Yeah, it's it's monetary policy, isn't it? I mean, um, interest rates been slashed, so you're you're getting nothing or next to nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, even some, you look at some government debt, then um, some of that is negative yielding, which is um, phenomenal. And um, with those yields being pushed down, as you say, you know, where's attractive 
Um, what's going to protect you from inflation in future? You're going to have to move either into the equity markets or into other risk assets. Mm. And yeah, I mean, the ev- evidence from the bond markets does suggest that this is absolutely a liquidity driven market rally rather than one that's being caused by by people being optimistic and expecting a bounce back post coronavirus, even though it seems that the markets are optimistic about about the future of um <laughs> of equity returns even though yeah i mean when we have employment data like we had this week it's quite hard to see exactly how the uk is going to rebound quite as much as some of the share prices suggest they will yeah on that note you're perhaps getting into the area again where bad news is good news for markets um because uh, over the last decade, of course, markets have become very reliant on uh, this liquidity and things like QE and loose monetary policy. Um, and therefore, whenever you get some economic data that isn't particularly great, um, that in a different sense is good because it means that the um, the support from from central banks is not going to be removed. The market driven rallies liquidity or not is something that two of our regular guests both have very strong views on and i have spoken to chris and phil about whether or not they are nervous about the current market situation hi chris thanks very much for joining me again a bit a couple a couple of weeks off but good to have you back on the podcast it's good to be back this week we decided to talk about liquidity because i mean it's a big topic at the moment one of the reasons it is such a big topic is because people are debating whether or not the market rally at the moment is liquidity driven why are people say, suggesting that this is a liquidity driven rally and what what is that well there's one big clue that is driven by liquidity and this is that since march when when the equity market started to rally we've seen bond yields fall now that's the sort of thing that shouldn't happen if people are more optimistic about economic fundamentals yeah, if pe- if people were expecting a stronger economy, you'd expect them to have have dumped gilts to move into cyclical assets such as equities. Now, the fact that that hasn't happened draws our attention to another reason for the rally, which is quite simply that central banks around the world are pumping money into the economy and into assets, and some of that is finding its way not only in into bonds. But into, into equities. Right. So it's not necessarily that there's optimism. It's just the fact that there, there is more money sort of floating around. And that's what's, what's driving the market upwards. There is a bit of optimism. But, you know, the idea that it's solely optimism or that optimism is very, is very great is contradicted by the declining guilt yields. Right. You've got some interesting data about how liquidity-driven rallies don't, as many people fear they might, give way to massive market collapses. Uh, Equity markets tend to rise in the six months following the so-called liquidity-driven rally based on the data that you've collected. So why do you think this liquidity-driven rally thing is perceived as such a bad thing? I think people have got this idea that somehow there are some things that happen in markets that are natural and some that are artificial. And people seem to think that market uh, market rallies that are driven by policy actions are, are somehow artificial, whereas those that are driven by investors' own optimism are, are somehow natural. Now, for me, this is a wholly silly um, uh, distinction in that policy makers' actions are as much part of the environment um, as, as investor expectations and earnings uh, uh, and everything else. So you don't think that at the moment the fact that there is more money in the system, the fact that the economic policy is helping support the markets, you don't think that that's a thing that investors should fear? No, not not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Firstly, because history tells us that liquidity-driven rallies are sustainable. I mean, the the way I went about this, I I looked at three-month periods since 1986 in which we saw positive returns on both equities and gilts, right? And I called those liquidity-driven rallies. And then I looked at what happened in the three months after then, and it turns out that, on average, equities have actually done slightly better after those liquidity-driven rallies than they've done in the average three-month period. So history warns us that liquidity-driven rallies 
can be sustained. And one big reason for this is simply that when central banks support the economy by cutting interest rates or, or, or printing money, um, that leads to stronger earnings growth in, in subsequent months. So liquidity-driven rallies can become earnings-driven rallies. And are there examples in history that have have, uh, have shown that happening? Well, lo- loads of them. I mean, 2009, for example, in central banks around the world started quantitative easing in, in, in early 2009. And the upshot was we saw a humongous rally in the market from the spring of 2009 onwards. And you mentioned, so you said that they can turn into earnings-driven rallies. I suppose the opposite of of a of a liquidity-driven rally is an op, it's an optimism-driven rally, and, and we know that that can sometimes end in tears because people become overconfident of continued success and and continued phenomenal growth. So. How can investors rationalise what's going on in the markets and, and think and, and have a like take a step back almost and have a look at what the, the bigger picture is of what's going on? You're, you're, you're absolutely right that it's excessive optimism that's a problem for the stock market, not not liquidity. Um, so the, the the question is, is there excessive optimism in the market? And if you look at UK equity valuations, the answer is obviously not in the dividend yield is still what 4.7 percent which is way above its long long term average um the 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 question is and are we what sort of economic recovery are we going to see from here and so far the, the signs are moderately encouraging but my concern is that whilst we might see quite a strong short-term uplift in in the economy and a particularly strong short-term uplift in earnings, I'm not sure whether that can be sustained over the longer run. For me, um, my main worry is is longer-term growth. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's also exogenous factors like Will we get a second wave of mm-hmm. the coronavirus or or not? Which you know, as economists, we we can't predict. No, no, of course, no, absolutely, no one, no one knows for sure exactly what's coming down the road from a health perspective. But yeah, I mean, the economic picture is, I suppose, starting to look a little bit clearer, at least in the short term. But yeah, like you say, the long term is is more of a of an unknown. But if if the economic recovery in the UK is is that V-shaped recovery and, and things bounce back to normal quite quickly quickly, and we don't get a second wave. Do you think that British investors are being pessimistic? I'm not, I'm not sure they are at all um, conditional on that. One great source for optimism here, I think, is the short-term outlook for corporate earnings. Um, simply as a, as a national accounts identity, If you get consumer spending rise relative to wages, which is highly likely to happen um, simply because of pent-up demand being released by the shops open, Mm. and if that occurs against a backdrop of still very high government borrowing, then as a matter of simple mathematics, you get a massive uplift in aggregate profitability. Now, what's even better for the stock market is the chance that a lot of that earnings growth will go into quoted companies because it is smaller, unquoted ones that are most in danger of of shutting down, Mm. simply because they don't have the the cash reserves Mm. or the management capacity. To, to see themselves through the, the lockdown, so so short term there are there are reasons for optimism, mm. but like I say, my, my big concern is is the, is the follow through. You know, when we see after we've seen this surge in pent up demand, what's going to happen then? And how do you think that the policy can support continued recovery rather than just a, an initial bounce back? Well, it, 
the monetary policy looks like it's going to be supportive. And the, the Fed and the ECB have promised to keep monetary policy loose for another 12, 24 months. Um, the Bank of England is highly likely to do the same. Um, the big question mark here is fiscal policy. Now, what we don't want is the government to start getting scared about high government borrowing and to introduce fiscal austerity. Um, because I, I don't think that the medium-term outlook for the economy is yet anything like secure enough mm-hmm. to justify that. And, and we must remember that with interest rates still being sharply negative, there is absolutely no need such austerity either. Mm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And that's actually something we've spoken about before, sort of spending your way out of crisis is, uh, is better than, can be better than borrowing your way out. The last thing I was going to just mention was, so you, in, in your article, you mentioned the oil price um, as an example of times when expectations for both uh, lower inflation and faster economic growth are sustained. And we've obviously had quite a stark oil price fall this year. Do you think now might be another occasion where equity and bond yields continue to decline based slightly on what the oil price is doing? It's hard to say because um, it could well be that we've, we've seen uh, that the oil price fall as far as it's going to. Yeah. And if we do get a resumption of economic activity oil prices will come back. But what you've got to distinguish here is the what causes oil prices to rise. Stock markets can cope very, very well with rising oil prices as long as that's due to increased global demand. It's if there's a supply disruption to the oil market that, that, that stock markets have a problem. And we have had a supply disruption as well as a demand disruption haven't we with with coronavirus yeah uh, only to some extent the the supply disruption there is more for the wider economy Mm. than than, than the oil market Mm. all right well chris thanks very much for joining me again really really good to speak to you well thank you the investment hi phil thanks for joining us again the markets what's going on what what's your take on the last week I actually feel quite relaxed about that. Oh, good. <laughs> um, That's not what I was expecting from you, Phil. You know, I think the, the sort of my thinking about them evolves all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of chatter about, you know, the disconnect between the stock markets and, and the real world and the real economy and people going back to various points in time and trying to compare you know, the valuations of the markets, you know, are we in a bubble, people are, people are trying to say. And I don't think it's as, I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, well, having said that, part of this is quite simple. And the simple fact is, is that stock markets are driven by flows of money. And at the moment, a lot of money has been created and it's looking for a home. Mm. And it's as simple as that. And, you know, there's lots of things about it that you could say are quite distasteful from a political, society, inequality type point of view. But, you know, the Federal Reserve has almost pretty much come out and said that, you know, it's underwriting the markets. You know, it's come out this week and, you know, saying that it's going to buy individual corporate bonds when actually it doesn't need to. And we have we have a stock market that is and has been for a long time that is addicted to, to cheap money, and it still comes down to the fact is where do people put their money? Because there's there's nothing there's no return on on um, on anything else, on any alternative. Yeah, people have gone for like so-called value stocks and. They've got burned badly mm. um, because profits have collapsed, dividends have come away. You know, I think you have to split the market up into bits, and um, there are bits of the market which I think are I think are okay. Yeah. Um, given the backdrop that we have. 
Do you think, do you necessarily think that the fact that the Federal Reserve and monetary policy is propping up the markets, do you necessarily think that's a bad thing? I do think it's a bad thing. I, I am a believer in, in free markets and that markets should be allowed to move around and find find a price. Mm-hmm. And it's cl- quite clear that the, the Federal Reserve, for the last 25 years actually, didn't want this to happen. You know, you go back to the you know sort of the, the mid the mid nineties with the so called Greenspan puts is what it's called. I hate things. I hate sort of quote phrases like that. It's very jargony. And, but you know, what was that? What was that? Are, that essentially, you know, the the Federal Reserve will cut interest rates to um, to make to make the the income on shares more attractive, mm-hmm. and therefore therefore push up prices. And, you know, it did it after the technology bubble in mm-hmm. early 2000. It's done it after the financial crisis, and it's doing it now. And every time it's doing it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The stimulus is getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I, I think it's a problem. If it's driving economic growth, and then that is allowing company earnings to increase as well which i mean can happen does it like does it necessarily have to be a problem if if that that monetary policy is actually supportive of of company growth i think it's a question is it is it really driving Mm -hmm. economic growth um i think i think and it's also the quality of growth you know not all growth is the same um you know you can have cheap borrowing costs which encourage people to spend money they haven't got on consumer goods and that drives the economy that's not good growth if you look at company earnings growth you know what we've seen a lot of over the last few years is companies not investing in new factories uh, new new uh, new projects um but borrowing money to buy back their own stock yeah and so, actually, economic growth has been quite, yeah. quite weak. Yeah. Company earnings growth has actually been quite strong. Mm. Yeah, and that like that borrowing money to buy back. So, I mean, Taylor Wimpy yesterday is a prime example of misuse of previous misuse of capital and why it was why it felt the need to pay back such such generous dividends, and now all of a sudden is raising a lot of money. That that seems completely it seems completely pointless. It seems like they've just mucked up. Yeah, you've paid out a lot of money to shareholders, and then you ask for it. Yeah, back. want it back. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I mean Taylor Wimpy. I think you know again, it's what, what's really interesting. I know going off a bit of a tangent here, but this is actually a great time to be an investor because you learn so much about companies. And particularly, you know, their resilience. So, I mean, Taylor Wimpy is a great example, you know. Um, had, you know, cash on the balance sheet. All these builders were paying out, paying out large amounts of dividends to shareholders. You've got to step back and ask yourself, why were they doing that? And the reason they, I think they were doing that is because they know that the housing market is it tends to go from boom to bust. And they wanted to give their shareholders something to hang on to, something tangible to underpin their share prices. So they came out and said, look, we know that share prices can rise and fall. So what we're going to try and do for you is we're going to try and give you cash instead so that, that once we've paid you that cash, we can't take it away. And... What we found out now is that when the economy hits a big bump, everything everything just collapses again. The fundamentals just collapse, and all those plans get thrown out the window, and the whole cyclicality of the of the of the company comes back to roost. Mm. And you know, they're now left in a very, you know where do where do companies like Taylor Wimpy go from here now? Mm. You know they've raised they've raised cash. You know their shares might look cheap, but the economics of the economics of uh, have changed in the short term and are uncertain in the long term. Mm. And um, 
if we just tie this back, tying this back into like the discussion about valuations and stuff, what what we are seeing here, what we're seeing over the last few few months, but also over the last decades, is continued flight to quality quality growth stocks. Yeah. So businesses that are incredibly strong. You know, I'm talking about the stuff that people use every day. Yeah. The Microsofts, the Apples, the Googles, particularly the tech companies, mm-hmm. but also things like the consumer staples stocks. People are prepared to pay for something that is strong, can grow, but also isn't going to blow up in their faces. And, you know, the valuation of those shares continue to climb. Yeah. When you compare them about what you can get on a bond or a savings account, they actually still look relatively okay. Well, yeah, because, yeah, like you say, the the bond situation at the moment is, yeah, you're not getting any returns from it. You're almost better in cash. And even if you are paying 40-odd times earnings for Microsoft shares, that growth, the growth in share, the share price and the growth in earnings it's pretty reliable. I mean, I, I personally think that Microsoft is going to keep growing at the same rate that it has done before. And I do think there are comp- other companies in the US. Like, I can't see what's going to stop Amazon, even the regulatory argument. I don't think it's strong enough yet to to stop that growth. I do have more of a problem with the consumer staples. I, I, don't, I don't know why you, Unilever's valuation disturbs me a little bit. I think it's a bit, it's a little bit much, considering it's struggling to grow. Um, but yeah, some of the US tech companies, I can see why investors keep ploughing into them, even though, yeah, they're becoming, the valuations are becoming almost ludicrous now. In some ways, yeah. But I mean, one, one of the things that I think is really interesting to come out of all this lockdown that we've had over the last three months is how people have used tech more. Mm. And what, we, what we've had is a, you know, awakening amongst millions of people, millions of workers, loads and loads of businesses about how this tech enables them to actually become better, to become more productive. Yeah. And, you know, we could get a situation. I mean, it was a very interesting piece written by um, uh, Bailey Gifford a few weeks ago. You know, the guys are like at Scottish Mortgage Trust. And and they were making the argument that we could see... um, a huge structural sort of shift in technology use, increased technology use that may have happened over a decade actually happen over, you know, two or three years. Yeah, absolutely. So you could get a, a huge chunk of growth that was probably going to sort of, sort of gradually tick along or just get shoved into the next mm-hmm. few years. And if that's true, and if that comes about, then... You know these technology these technology shares don't look expensive, mm-hmm. and I mean and the other thing I think to point out is this is nothing like, in my opinion, this is nothing like the late nineties or the two thousands, which you know I actually worked through this, and you know going back then you you just saw absolute trash, absolute you know companies with with no profits, yeah, some of them even had no revenues you know, being valued at, you know, ridiculous, you know, having billions and billions of market cap put, up, put onto them. When, I mean, there are pockets of that. Yeah. You know, yeah, but we're nowhere near the, you know, the sort of scale of that. You know, you're looking, if you're looking at the companies that have been driving the rallies in stock markets, they're all significantly profitable companies. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so companies which consumers can't really deal without anymore i mean people rely so heavily on google and on microsoft and 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 even though it is just for for shopping a lot of it's just for shopping even though we've also got the web servers yeah amazon as well people really 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 rely on amazon it's not going to be able to be taken away as easily as some of those like you say the tech stocks around the turn of the millennium they just collapsed because they (laughs) there wasn't actually need for them yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important point, for, particularly for the American stock market, but, you know, for actually parts of all markets. 
But if you look at the American stock market, um, it is packed full of very large companies that have either have or very close to having a form of monopoly power mm. in that they, you have you have industry giants that dominate you know you just mentioned Amazon you know mm. the likes of Microsoft but you can take it into play, into industries like healthcare mm-hmm. um, and you have huge dominance amongst companies you know you're looking at industries that can be dominated by two three or four or five companies and there's an absence of competition there which gives these companies power mm-hmm. now from an investor's point of view that's a real that's something that they all look for you know um from a consumer's point of view it's not so good and clearly the big risk is that regulators governments try and take these big companies on i mean we saw the european union yesterday mm. talking about um I think it was Amazon they were talking about. Apple and Amazon, they've done this week, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Apple's under, you know, a lot of scrutiny about the pricing power it has in its uh, app store. Yeah. Um, So, you know, as long as these things stay, you know, as long as these companies stay powerful, and, and, and these companies have huge power and influence, you know, in terms of lobbyists, and the money that they can throw to influence politicians, it's not, not particularly nice part of life, but it's a fact of life, mm. then, you know, these, these, com- these things can these things can stay, the valuations of these companies can stay high. Yeah. I think what's more, more of a problem, particularly for our listeners, who are, you know, essentially buying, buying UK shares or, or trade, buying and trading UK shares, is that there is... A real issue with what's on the menu, um, because you've got a lot of cyclical, yeah, quite weak, weak companies, um, and it's it's really quite hard. I, I, I think what's interest what's interesting is it's a, the UK market is definitely a stock pickers market. It's not it's not something that I think you can go and buy a tracker. Because it's because it's too diluted by by poor quality businesses, yeah, and that's what gives the individual investor a chance, I think. Yeah, which then I suppose then goes back to the original thing that we were talking about about this liquidity driven rally. The fact that the U- UK stock market is up just as much as the US stock market market is since the since the trough in March. Which, yeah, in in the context of what's driving the US rally, these big U- US tech stocks, which are actually genuinely in higher demand at the moment, what's driving the UK rally? It's it's that hunt. I don't like. There aren't any companies. Well, there are s- such a small handful of companies where there's there's genuine quality and there's genuine long term growth potential that yeah that the rally does seem a bit a bit crazy yeah i mean you know you've seen you've, you've seen a recovery in in shares that have got beaten up a lot mm-hmm. you know, a lot of retail shares have, have come back but then you've also had you know companies that are doing you know incredibly well like boohoo um and you know we had a We've had we've had a few sort of sort of small caps, aim stocks, um, best of the best, which is like I don't know if you've come across that one. Mm. That, that's been an interesting one this week. You know, yeah, does competitions to win cars, and the share price gains were massive yeah. this week on the back of much expected better results, and then they're a subject of a takeover. Yeah, so there are pockets, but you know you have to pay. You have to pay very very high prices for a lot of these a lot of these these quality shares and then you look in the sort of value names and you ask yourself how do these companies how do these companies adapt to potentially a new way of life you know do we all do we all go back to normal you know in in 12 months time you and i having this conversation said do you remember when we were worried about all this and it's like it never happened that's that's possible. Mm. That's possible, 
But you look at a lot of these consumer-facing businesses, retailers, leisure companies, hotel companies, pubs, and you, you do ask yourself, you know, how, you know, do these companies go back to how they were? If they do, then you can make an argument for saying the shares are actually really, really good value. With the with the caveat that a lot of them are sick, that, that are cyclical. But even even with that, you can say right, there's some of these shares are undervalued. But the risks the, the risks that come with it are actually quite quite high. And this is this is the thing that you know you get down to the basics now of what investing is all about. It's about trading off the business that you're looking at with you know, and the returns with potential with the risks that you take. And businesses that are perceived to be lower risk, you, understandably, investors are prepared to pay pay higher prices for them, higher valuations for them. And you know, speaking personally, there's a lot to be said for like going to bed at night, and if you if you're thinking about your portfolio, you're thinking, do I worry about that? I mean, I you know, I've got friends who own shares, and oh, you know, on the phone and saying. Oh, I've bought some of this. I'm not. I'm not too sure about this. And said, so, "Yeah, well, you're right to be not sure about." It. <laughs> I'm sure that helps them when you. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but it's. But you know what I mean. It's mm. you know. Do you want to? Do you go to bed sleeping better owning? I don't know, Spirex Arco or Halmer in the UK or Taylor Wimpy. <laughs> you know, you, you might make you might make more money in the short run from a bounce in, in a cyclical share, but over the long run, you've made more, you know, you've done better in in something that's a lot more robust. Mm. So should should investors at the moment be going to bed worried about the markets as a whole, that not even necessarily looking at the specific areas of quality or value? Do you think that what's happening, what the rally is, is so fake? It's so, uh, it's come from uh, uh, the the monetary policy rather than the natural genuine company growth do you think that investors should be going to bed worried every night no no i mean there's no point you can't change it um but i'm really glad that was your answer <laughs> yeah i mean you have to ask yourself what's gonna what's gonna stop this i mean am i saying that people shouldn't worry no i'm not saying that but I'm saying you shouldn't lose any sleep about it because there's nothing you can you can do to change about mm-hmm. it. And the answer is, you know, what what do you do? You know, do you just park your money in cash and just sit there and earn nothing? Or and of course, you know, every investor is different. You know, different time horizons, different tolerances for risk, and all that kind of stuff. But I I can't see. I could, the, the, the one thing I can see that really brings this to a, to a halt is a big rise in inflation because the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England can suppress interest rates to a large extent. What they can't, what they can't do is they can't control inflation. They can't, by, by what they're doing in terms of printing money, they can't control the currency, the value of the currency, and they can't buy that by definition, potentially change the rate of inflation. And, you know, one of the things that's supportive of the big supporters of equity valuations, which seem high by historic standard, is not just low interest rates, but low inflation. And we've got very, very low inflation. Now, we know that bonds have yielded less than inflation, but shares... Shares um, shares can't go to a negative yield unless unless they're loss making or cash flow negative. So if you've got a company that's profitable and generating cash flow, they're going to have a positive yield. Now, if if these share, if shares have a positive yield and also a yield that's higher than the rate of inflation, and you think that that yield can grow based on the current share price, then, then my view is that for share, certain shares, things are still quite supportive. But if you were to get inflation spiking up, to, so let's say you've got a share on like a 3% free cash flow yield, 
and inflation is 1%. So you've got a 2% real yield there. If you think that they can grow their cash flow, then your yield on cost is going to go up. And hopefully that's supportive of the valuation. If inflation spikes to 5%, is that share going to be valued at a 3% free cash flow yield? I'm not convinced it is. Mm. That's the big risk. And at the moment, all this money printing, the same as it was after the financial crisis, hasn't gone into the price of stuff that we that we all buy day to day. Yes, you can go around the supermarket, as I'm sure you do, and you can say, that's a lot higher than it was two months ago. But actually, the basket of stuff that we're buying is not yet going up a lot. Mm. Petrol is incredibly cheap. You know, and, and so consumers aren't feeling that. Yeah, it's all gone into it's all gone into the financial markets, and if it stays in the financial markets and doesn't flip over into the real economy, then that, then to an extent you can argue that things are all right for a while. Um. I, I feel really nervous saying saying that kind of thing because you know you know that the market is rigged, right? We all know that the market is rigged, but we've been living in a false market for a while, and we could live in this we could live in this for a long, long time to come. But if that's what we have to play with, you know, if we're playing with the set of cards that we're dealt with, if you're playing, if you decided you want to play the game, that. You know, these are the kind of strategies that you have to bear in mind. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, don't play. But if you don't play, you haven't got very many other options if you're looking for returns on your money. So people are that's why people are playing, aren't they? If we're talking about investing yeah. as being the game. Yeah, the only thing alternative you have, I think, for your cash for most people is to pay off debt. Mm. Pay you know, pay your mortgage off. That's probably good, safe. It's return. not as much fun though, is it? I don't know. <laughs> depends, depends what you want. Depends if you want to live mortgage-free or not. That is true. That is true. Well, thanks, Phil. That was a, a good, good conversation. Lot, lots to, uh, lots to ponder. So now we've been joined by Alex Hamer to have a chat about liquidity as an investment strategy because this is something that he's looked into um, based on a paper that he read. So, Alex, do you want to just run us through briefly what that? paper is that you read and why it sparked your interest sure so the the, the paper itself um is called liquidity as an investment style by roger ibbotson and daniel kim from zebra capital management um and their their main point is that alongside um size value or growth and then momentum as as a style of investment um to to look at we should also be including liquidity and their argument is that high liquidity in in too much demand so so if you look at low liquidity companies you're actually getting them more cheaply um and they outperform um you know the market as a whole um which which i found really you know interesting because it was a surprise yeah, that's something that I had. I just hadn't even considered it at all that that could be a thing. But it actually, it does make sense that, yeah, high, high liquidity companies are in, in high demand. They're held in a lot of funds. They're held. Private investors like to to buy them. They like to look for high liquidity. And and actually, the fact that low liquidity, the fact that you can buy in at a lower price, um, maybe because people are put off it is yeah, it's a really interesting topic. And some of the data that they've got behind it is is really interesting. Yeah, I think you know if I just run through their their numbers quickly because you know it is important to to get an idea of of, of what the difference is here. Um, so the the mean return from um, it's a few thousand companies in the US um, over forty years. Um, the mean return um, was fifteen percent um, for the lowest liquidity companies. Um, this is between nineteen seventy two and twenty seventeen. So fifteen percent. And the highest liquidity companies, the return was 7.7%. And this is only measuring um, between the end of each year. Um, but that's a, a significant difference. And then it, also when you look at, um, you know, this isn't just the, the, the micro caps. It's also the biggest companies that, that are conforming to this as well. So 
I mean, in London, we've got a few kind of billion, multi-billion pound um, low liquidity companies um, that are usually family-run companies. So you've got something like FW Thorpe, which has a really low float. Um, and we've shown in the past at the IC that companies that have tightly held um, shares um, and kind of, you know, that 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 approach to, to running a company that, you know, it's not like a bank where, they, where you've got hundreds of millions of shares coming in and out every day. Um, it's, it's actually fairly tight. You know, it, it is a positive thing for investors if you can actually buy the shares, which is the downside to all this. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that is quite a big big downside, especially as tightly held shares, often the price that you want to buy at is quite it's quite difficult to buy to buy when you decide that time, the times to buy if there aren't that many shares being traded then it is yeah it's not easy easy to buy the shares but yeah it's a it's certainly an interesting investment strategy that that yeah there's there's some good data behind yeah i think you know for me my, my normal beat is looking at mining and oil and gas stocks and if someone's got low liquidity um it's usually just because they i mean no one no one cares enough really <laughs> um about these companies and and you know, you might have a few off-book trades during the day, but um, they're just not changing hands because um, they might have a low share count because they're so early. Um, and then when they start ramping up that liquidity, it's not a good sign either. Once they ramp up that liquidity, because it means they're issuing shares uh, to fund themselves. Um, so this has always been quite a negative thing um, in the sectors that I look at when you don't have enough shares. Um, so to, to find that... Um, as a, as a net positive, it, yeah, it, it, as I said before, it's a surprise. Um, and I think the other thing worth mentioning is that for UK investors, the the, the, the sign of low liquidity um, surely would be a, a massive warning sign um, after the the Neil Woodford crisis um, last year, because you know there are rules around having um, you know enough. I guess you know once again using the word liquidity, but having assets in a fund that you can quickly exit um, and he didn't and he ran into real strife and, and that, that kind of put a lot of investors out of pocket. Um, so, you know, this is, I think this is a 10-page paper by the Zebra Capital um, duo and they, they it's mainly just the numbers um, looking at um, companies whose shares aren't traded as much. Um, but when you dig into it, there are some really interesting implications. Um, so whether, you know, family-run stocks are, are a better investment, um, you know, whether massive volumes are actually not a, you know, also another investment style, massive volumes aren't something to look for. Um, I don't know. It's, it's just another thing to look at, I guess, um, when, you're, when you're trying to choose uh, what to buy. Alex, was there, just out of interest, was there any um, sort of characteristic they found in common with some of these kind of less uh, liquid stocks? Um, or, or was it more just to do with the, the kind of premium um, that you're not paying for liquidity as such. Yeah, look, they they didn't go too in depth. I think so. The, the four factors that they they've looked at um, to argue that that um, that liquidity should be an investment style. So that's um, an investment style as set out by William Sharp, who everyone should know from his Sharp ratio. Um, but the, the four things are they shouldn't be easily beaten. So basically, they should beat the market. Um, they should be a viable alternative to the other stocks. So it might be um, you've picked something um, on a um, oh, what would you choose? Um, you've picked something on a momentum basis, and then if you also look at something that has low liquidity, that should add to the case. Um, it should be low cost, so it shouldn't be falling in and out of that style categorization um, year on year. Which low liquidity they, they're not going to they're not going to suddenly become hugely traded companies. So that they should also be additive. To, to other styles, so which is kind of like a viable alternative, but you know, I mean, th- these are Sharp's words, but um, it's fairly clear that um, the Zebra guys have ticked all these boxes. Um, they haven't gone further down that road looking at, you know, exactly why these companies might outperform. Um, you know, like I said, the, the family-run um, side of things could be a, um, a big correlation here with liquidity, but... Um, yeah, they, ha- they haven't gone the full way. Um, I'm sure they have when they're buying their own stocks, but but just not not publicly. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Alex, for explaining that and for introducing us to this topic, which actually inspired the whole uh, whole topic of this podcast. So, uh, so thanks for thanks for that. Good stuff. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Alex. Bye.
Cool. Well, Dave, well, as um, Alex brought up there, Woodford has definitely made liquidity a bit more of a dirty word or illiquidity more of a dirty word in the uh, in the UK, especially. Is do you, do you think from like, with your personal finance hat on? Do you think it's something that people should be afraid of to the extent that they they maybe are since Woodford? Yeah, it's a good question. I I don't think afraid is the word. Perhaps more aware. Um, so we, I mean, last year we were looking into the whole um, Woodford debacle and um, looking at perhaps what lessons have been learned, what improvements have been made. Um, some of the improvements are uh, in the fund space at least um the kind of open-ended funds uh, are focusing less and less on those um liquid holdings because you get a sort of mismatch between how liquid the fund units are and how liquid the actual holdings are um but really you you can't escape some of the issues of illiquidity um however you kind of access it whatever you do with it so uh, for example um in the wake of the Woodford crisis um, some fans of investment trusts um, have said, you know, this is a good um, example of why investment trusts are a better way to access illiquid asset classes like unlisted equities, infrastructure, property, that sort of thing. And th- that is a valid point to an extent, um, but you're still, um, because you, you can trade those shares in investment trusts on a secondary market, um, similar to what I was talking about with ETFs before, yeah. um, but you're still... Uh, kind of giving something up because when uh, people are concerned about liquidity when people are concerned about the holdings you may still be able to sell out of the shares but the shares will fall in value so you're basically selling at a kind of discount to um, what was the underlying value of the portfolio Um, so it's just it's just the usual message of kind of looking at how liquidity is managed um, and you know what your what you're getting in return for illiquidity is it really good high growth companies is it you know just that kind of general premium um but you know what's the um what's the trade-off there's always a trade-off mm-hmm. interestingly it's something that some funds seem to be slightly more interested illiquid assets is something that some funds seem to be a little bit more interested in at the moment yeah. we've seen scottish mortgage recently say that it's going to up the limit on on the amount of liquid assets it can hold in its funds um which yeah is really interesting when people have been worried about the about the liquidity in the markets at the moment and the fact that it's a we're potentially in a bit of a a dodgy economic situation it seems like a strange time to be increasing exposure to the higher risk side of the of investment in equities yeah it does um I suppose they would argue it's more, you know, they have a very long-term approach um, and they, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Scottish Mortgage, but they look for kind of innovative, innovative companies. Um, they're probably most closely associated with some of those big American tech names. Um, but what they've been finding is there are a lot of good opportunities in China in areas like tech, in other kind of interesting, disruptive businesses. Um, and a few of those uh, sectors they focus on have kind of benefited from some of the trends we've seen accelerating in the, the COVID lockdown. Um, but I mean, I think they would argue that really some of those high growth opportunities are um, available in the kind of unlisted and therefore illiquid universe. Mm. And therefore, that's where you should be going. And I suppose it ties in with um, something we've looked a lot at in the IC in recent years, which is this whole idea that you know public markets are shrinking. And um, with it being, I suppose... Um, easier to raise capital perhaps in in private channels and with some of these kind of disruptive tech names being more capital light perhaps leading less money um, that's where they're tending to focus on you know they're raising that money privately rather than um, submitting to the various kind of burdens that come with um, come with going public yeah Um, yeah so yeah there was actually some data out today um, about VC investment has been increasing um, during the during the coronavirus pandemic, especially. But yeah, it's a trend that's actually been happening over over the long term, not just in the last yeah, few months. Yeah. There are some good ways of accessing. Um, uh, low liquidity. There was one that I a fund that I found extremely interesting, or an ETF. Vanguard um, has an ETF, a low liquidity ETF, which it actually. It's, it actively manages it, which isn't something that I realised that could happen in the ETF world. Uh, it's a very confusing concept. Yeah, I don't it is. Find it, but, but um, uh, 
it's it can be quite a blurred line when people talk about active ETFs. So um, I don't know if it applies to this one, but some of some of Vanguard's so-called active ETFs are they're kind of um, they focus on a on a style on a tilt on a certain kind of characteristic yeah and the active element is the uh, the investment managers can basically um, alter the extent to which um, the ETF is constrained in what it invests in so they can kind of move those those criteria move those goalposts as it were a little bit right. um, so that they're not always um, perhaps going like full fat active in terms of like stock picking that mm-hmm. kind of thing um, but yeah, it is. It's definitely kind of a growing part of the market, um, and it'll be interesting to see if people uh, kind of focus on that more. Mm. Um, but but yeah, interesting to see kind of a, a liquidity or I guess illiquidity focused mm. um, ETF. Uh, I don't know if you've had a look at what they hold. I was looking at uh, they do hold some things like the, uh, the Three I Group Infrastructure Trust. So that's a kind of or not infrastructure, sorry, private equity trust, um, and that's kind of a an investment trust that has had some real successes in in recent years um they've made absolutely huge returns from kind of various uh private equity um investments again it's it's interesting to see that in the etf format do you get yeah do you get some kind of liquidity mismatch at some points it would be i mean i don't actually know even know how old it is but um yeah it's uh yeah it certainly seems like an interesting product for investors who are hunting for that kind of for hunting for illiquidity if they agree with or if they want to get access to those things that Ro- Roger Ibbotson and in, in his paper is talking about we've been discussing some of the weird things we've seen in in the sell-off and since the sell-off um with different assets uh i guess one interesting point about liquidity is um sometimes if you're the most liquid part of the market that can actually um kind of lead to greater volatility which is bizarre um so for example um in the sell-off earlier this year um some of the kind of big winners were those classic safe haven assets so gold and also government bonds um they generally perform very well uh but we did see points where investors were really confused because they they suddenly kind of massively dropped in price and that has actually been attributed to this idea that um you know everything else in investors portfolio was, was struggling and they were looking for kind of easy ways to raise cash um and the best way to do that without making a loss was to cash in these very liquid investments that have actually um have risen mm-hmm. um and I, to an extent you perhaps also saw this with the the woodford um problem because uh, uh for when repositioning his portfolio he would um, and when basically meeting investor redemptions, he would have to do that via the most liquid parts of his um, his portfolio. Mm. And that would mean selling, for example, FTSE 100 listed company shares. Um, but that would basically mean that as he did that, um, the less liquid part of his portfolio became bigger mm-hmm. and became more of a problem for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Woodford's always going to be the poster boy of the dangers of of investing in in the liquid stocks but it is it's interesting to hear the other angle as well so yeah thanks dave for joining me this week it's been really fun to record the podcast with you thanks for having me thanks very much for listening to this week's episode of the investment hour that's i'm afraid all we've got time for but if you'd like to read more about any of the topics we've discussed in this episode, head to the website where Chris Dillo has written an article on not being fearful of liquidity-driven rallies, while Phil Oakley has debated whether the stock market is detached from reality. You can also read Alex Hamer's article where he introduces us to the concept of illiquidity as an investment strategy based on the research of Roger Ibbotson and Daniel Kim of Zebra Capital Management. There's all the normal news and quite a few results in the magazine this week. And this week's cover feature takes a deeper look at healthcare in the next instalment of our new future series. Harriet Clarfelt and I have discussed whether or not coronavirus could be the turning point for a change in the global healthcare market. Mary McDougall has also looked at healthcare in this week's big theme. She's taken a look at healthcare funds, which could help you tap into the trends of a changing market. Thanks very much, as always, to Phil and Chris for joining me and and for providing such interesting thinking points and to Alex Hamer for being the inspiration for this week's podcast and for joining us. 
And of course, thanks very much to Dave Baxter for joining me as host this week. John will be back next week when we will be discussing China. Tune in then and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.